everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. For a long time, weight loss and weight management strategies have focused on counting calories. The question we ask in today's episode is, does that work? That is, if you count accurately, will it predict your weight loss or gain? To answer these questions, we pit two theories against each other. On one side, there is the argument that you can't break the laws of thermodynamics, and therefore a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. And you just need to know what goes in your body and how it gets used to understand which direction your weight will go, up or down. On the other side, there is the carbohydrate-insulin model, based on the fact that insulin promotes energy storage, and as a result, the belief is that low energy availability then promotes further intake. We'll discuss the evidence for and against the viability of each of these theories, then turn our attention to what is arguably a more important question. Do we over-equate weight loss with improved health? And what are the most healthy ways to lose weight? We're excited to be joined today by a leading voice in the world of exercise physiology, Dr. Timothy Noakes, whose work has had a significant impact on nutrition as well as many other aspects of sports science. Let's make you fast. Hey, it's Coach Ryan here. Many of us are enjoying a return to bike racing. These early races of the season are ideal for testing your race fitness. But how much more could you get out of this season if you knew your VO2 max or if you reset your training zone? Our new Inside Advanced Test offers you an incredible detailed look at both of these metrics and many more. Schedule an Inside Test with us this week and your test results can pay off in better performance for the rest of the season. See more at FastTalkLabs.com. Well, it's been many years, Dr. Noakes, since we've had you on Fast Talk. Welcome back. Lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me back. Trevor, we have a, a complicated, uh, I guess you could even call it controversial subject to talk about today. Um, I don't know if it's worth revealing the fact that we reached out to a lot of people to be on this show about this subject, and, and some of them turned us down. And I, I would assume that's because of this complicated and controversial nature. It is a controversial one. And so, Dr. Noakes, thanks for joining us and being willing to take this one on because, as Chris said, you know, we reached out to some other people who are considered experts in the, the subject to get their opinion on this, and we got the no comment. Mm -hmm. you know, they just <laughs> didn't, didn't want to say anything about this. We are talking about does weight loss come down to calories in, calories out? I just want to qualify this by saying I you know, don't recommend calorie counting to my athletes. It's something that I, I rarely say that's a good idea. I think there's a lot of issues with it. I think it can lead to a lot of uh, negative psychology in how you view diet. So while we're going to talk about calories, while we're going to bring up this issue, go into laws of thermodynamics, I just want to say up front that we're not necessarily here saying we're proponents of count every calorie that you eat. And we're... And, Dr. Noakes, I know you're going to look forward to this part. What we're going to hopefully end with is a conversation of what are the healthy ways to lose weight. Right. Sure. I look forward to that. It's, uh, I think I'll be able to explain to you why the others didn't want to take it on. It's going to come <laughs> up with as, we, as we go along. Great. Good. So let's start with the basics, Dr. Noakes, um, because there is this notion that a lot of people have about uh, calories in and calories out is all it comes down to. 
Yeah, well, the calorie is the amount of heat that you need to add to water to raise its temperature one degree centigrade. So the question is, well, how does that relate to, to the story of nutrition? I'm going to tell you that the in calorie out story is is a very, very simplistic, obviously right explanation. I mean, it's the energy in must determine your weight gain if you don't expend the same amount of energy or the same with weight loss. But the trouble is it's been hijacked by industry as an explanation that all foods are the same so that all calories that you eat affect the body equally. So that it doesn't matter if you have a thousand calories of meat or a thousand calories of sugar, the effect on the body is identical. And that's where the problem arises because it's not. And so that's point one. And point two is we cannot measure your calorie consumption or your calorie use to within accuracy, I would say five to 10%. And anyone who tells you that you can measure the daily energy expenditure accurately and knows exactly how many calories are in food in the sense that how much energy comes out of the food that you eat is absorbed into the body and stored as energy or used as energy is lying. We, we can't. So to start counting calories and then trying to calculate how much calories you expended because you ran a certain distance or did amount of exercise is, is absolutely nonsensical. The reality is that the accuracy of the calculations, if you want to remain in normal body weight, are, are beyond anything that a human, can do, a human scientist could do. We do not have the technology that could if we put you in a laboratory and said, this is how much you have to eat because this is how much energy you're expending, we couldn't get it right. The only thing that can get it right is the what we call the apostat in the brain. That tells you, that makes the calculations absolutely perfectly. And if you're in, in proper body weight, you're, it matches absolutely identically the calories, the energy that you're eating and the energy you're expending. So I actually want to jump in there and just take a step back for, for anybody who's kind of new to this concept. So as you said, a, a calorie is a unit of energy. That's literally what you're measuring. You, you gave the simple explanation that it's, it's what it takes to raise a liter of water one degree Celsius. There are laws of thermodynamics here. The, and the, the, the first law is energy cannot be created or destroyed. So, you know, I think it's really important that everybody understands this, that at that very simplistic level, it really does come to calories in, calories out, because anything that says otherwise is basically breaking the laws of thermodynamics. That's correct. To lose weight, you have to have a higher energy expenditure than you have an intake. That's no one debates that. It's the advice that comes from that that is totally wrong. Right. The human is not a, not a black box into which you put energy and it gets burnt. Uh, sorry, you put food and it gets burnt as energy. Unfortunately, we have a brain. And if you want a brainless biology, then you could talk about calories in and calories out. But unfortunately, the nature of the calories that you take in determines exactly how many calories you're going to eat. And that's the key. And similarly, it's probable that as you start to store calories, you, you, your, your desire to exercise goes down. So you, the calories in and the calories out is not independent of the nature of the food that you're eating 
and it's not independent of your desire to be physically active. Those are both tightly tied up with what you're eating. And that's where the problem arises. While our answer is a lot more complicated, we started this episode asking if weight loss is a simple matter of calories in, calories out. Pearl Izumi's Advanced Development Project Manager, Rob Pickles, gives us a simple answer, but then explains why it actually isn't so simple. Uh, in regard to weight loss, yeah, I think that at the very simplest breakdown, calories in versus calories out. It's a very easy concept to understand. And, and frankly, I think that that gets you 95% of the way there. And, and for the majority of people, that's everything that you need, right? If you can get 95% of the way there with a very simple explanation, then life is grand. Um, but I don't believe it's 100%. I think that there is a bit more going on here. And I think that we would have to understand the nuance of substrate utilization within people. I think that we would have to understand the nuance of inflammatory factors with different foods that you have and, and how does that actually affect your metabolism, right? And, and let's say, I don't know, if you're allergic to wheat and you're eating a lot of wheat as part of your calories, um, is that inflammation that then comes from that celiac disease or whatever you have, is that affecting your metabolism such that the math just doesn't quite work out as simply as calories in, calories out? Uh, at the same time, I, I don't know that we have a lot of study in that. I don't know that we can truly understand that. And I don't know that I would necessarily recommend that to people on a day-to-day -day basis without that deep knowledge. And so, yeah, I would probably say calories in equals calories out uh, if I was giving general advice. Dr. Noakes, maybe you could go into a little bit more detail about why it's so hard to accurately count calories. The, the reason is that we don't know what's happening to those calories that you ingest. When, so when you ingest, it's got to go through a digestion process. It's then going to be tackled by some of the bacteria in the gut, and we don't know what they're going to do to the, to the food that you've eaten. And that is going to remove some of the calories from it. In addition, you will, your body heats up when you eat, and that will influence calorie loss, and that may be different for different foods. So these are processes that are minuscule and very difficult to measure. And again, I make the point that to, to balance your daily calories, calories in, calories out, so that you do not gain weight, you have to be accurate to within a, a few calories, you know, a quarter teaspoon of sugar. That's it. If you're out by that amount, or let's say one flight of stairs walking, if you're out by that amount every day, you'll put on kilograms during the year. So the accuracy ha it has to be much greater than we can do measure in the laboratories. That, that's the first point. The second point is that, I mean, as a, having written widely on running, we know that the energy cost of running is differs by 10 to 15% between different runners. So if you think that you've gone and run 1000 calories, you could have spent 1100 calories, or you could have spent 900 calories. So that difference of 100 calories, again, is going to destroy your balance. If you keep doing that every day and thinking that you're actually spending, expending 100 calories more than you really are, your balance will be completely out. So what I'm trying to say is that we do not have the techniques in the laboratory to be accurate enough to, to keep you weight stable. 
the only if you are weight stable all it tells us is you're matching your calories in and your calories out exactly for your personal biology that's all we can say if you're the weight's going up you're eating in it you're eating more calories than you're expending but that really doesn't help us in weight loss because the body is not simply a box which just burns calories and and stores it or or burns it it's much more complex than that and the and the key as i'll indicate is the the calories you eat determine the, the calories that you will eat what you eat determines what you will eat and simply taking the same diet that you've been eating that made you fat and thinking that i can eat exactly the same composition but just a few calories less i will lose weight is completely fallacious so one thing i just want to bring up i remember going to a presentation by dr joseph donnelly who um he is considered uh, one of the top researchers on on weight loss and we actually asked him that very specific question about calories in calories out and he gave the example of a, a caloric chamber so we actually have these chambers you can put people in them you can measure exactly how many calories they're consuming and this chamber is actually able to measure exactly how many calories they they burn and when you do that yeah it really matches up um, you, you basically see weight loss weight gain matches up with how much you, you consume how much you burn but his point that he made to us is all these factors. Um, th there are so many factors that affect what you burn that it's actually really hard to measure. And he said, you know, if you use one of those those um, uh, a piece of software that counts your calories, he goes, yeah. you can be 200 calories off. You know, there's a big range of error. And pointed sure. out when you look at an obese child next to a skinny child often the difference in what they're eating is only 150, 100 calories. So the margin of error in the software is the difference between what you're trying to achieve and where you might be. Right, right. It adds up over time, for sure. Yeah, precisely. And, 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 and although you indicate that it can be measured, we had one of those, one of those uh, rooms where you could measure metabolic rate. And I can tell you there were about six in the world that actually worked. Hmm. They are incredibly complex to build. Yes. And to be accurate, it's, it's astonishingly difficult. So that 99.999% of people will never get to a laboratory where you can actually measure accurately your, your calories, your expended. And even then, you're not going to be able to calculate accurately the calories in because the food is going to be, is not going to, everybody's going to be individual. As you've indicated, we, we, we process food differently. And that's going to make an, another factor that's going to be influenced as well. That's going to influence the calculations. And just to show how complicated this is, when you're talking about, well, how much do you expend? You're talking about your resting energy expenditure, which is affected by the foods you eat that can increase it or decrease it. There's what's called the thermic effect of food. So there's calories that are expended in the actual processing of food and, and different nutrients are going to have different thermic effects. There's what's called adaptive thermogenics, which is... Um, some diets are going to actually cause your basically slowing down in your metabolism. Metabolism is just basically a measure of your total energy expenditure or the, the, the balance of energy in your body. Um, fiber consumption with food can affect how much you actually um, excrete, and you can just keep going. So I think this is part of what you're getting to, which is the actual diet you eat can have a big effect on both the calories in and the calories out, making this next to impossible to accurately measure. 
Yeah, and then if I could add another bit of work done by one of my former students, she looked at the the daily energy expenditure of people who were going from from sedentary people to moderately active to highly active, and the idea that if you become a marathon runner, you're going to suddenly expend far more energy than anyone else isn't true because she found there was a ceiling and above that ceiling, people did not, even though they ran more each day, they didn't expend more calories. And why was that? Because they went to sleep more and they, they rested more and they didn't walk as much and they didn't do other activities. And all of us who've run a lot know that absolutely. I remember one Olympic gold medalist in the marathon saying that the worst thing for him was go shopping with his wife because <laughs> it was the extra energy expenditure that he couldn't cope with. He could run 20 miles a day, but he couldn't go to the to the to the supermarket to buy food because that was extra energy expenditure and he didn't have any any extra calories for that. So that's the other point. That's how it's inaccurate. You and sorry, and the other point is in all these calculations, they forget. So for let's say you go out and you've run and you think you've expended a thousand calories, what you don't forget, what you forget is that actually, if you just stayed at home, you've expended 200 calories. So the difference is only 800 calories. It's not a thousand calories, but that is never put into these equations. They always forget that the time that you are exercising, you've got to subtract the energy expenditure if you had spent that time at rest. And you so that the, there is an added energy expenditure of exercise, but you have to subtract what would have happened if you hadn't been exercising, you would have been burning some calories. So the calculations go wrong there as gain and, and all the calculations never include the resting metabolic rate when you whilst you were exercising, they never exclude that amount. So that it's it's a disaster going going down this route. So and trying to be over scientific because we cannot match the brilliance of the brain in matching how much energy you need and making sure that you get the right type of food in the right number of calories. As Dr. Noakes pointed out, even athletes doing huge volumes of work often burn fewer calories than they think. Petr Vakoc, a pro on Team Alpecin Phoenix, who just finished racing at the Tour de France, talked with us about this challenge. Yeah, for me, it's it's really important to start early enough and uh, to not be like afraid to to be in an, on a race weight or close to the race weight uh, quite early because uh, then I always realize that once uh, the races are are coming uh, closer, it's very very difficult to to lose any weight uh, without. Uh, having it a detrimental effect on, on your recovery. So for me, it works, works best in the, on the preseason camps or like then later in the season, if you are on altitude camps. So I always lose weight on the, on the trainings, never in the races. And then, uh, yeah, the struggle for me, the biggest struggle is always to, to keep the weight when the racing starts. And especially when you have a lot of one day races, uh, quite long time apart uh, because then the, yeah, your overall training and racing load is not, not that high, but uh, you always, or at least I, I always feel, feel hungry and uh, getting the balance right uh, between uh, 
having enough and not not eating too much that's uh that was uh, something that was or has been the the biggest challenge for me in the in the weight uh, management area do you count calories i don't uh, do it very often but every now and then i i really make sure to to see how how am i doing but uh, generally i have really good uh, idea about how much uh, calories are in which food and how much i eat and it it doesn't doesn't change change that much and uh, it's uh, it's it's helpful especially i would say during during the the races or or between the races and and then just uh, maybe if you have a couple of easy days after a race then i really make sure to count how much i eat because then always it feels like i oh, you don't need that much but if you only write maybe an hour or have a complete day off then uh, uh it's it's not that much food that uh, you actually have to eat in the day a lot of pro cyclists that struggle with um their diets eating even eating disorders do you see that yeah i've i've seen few riders uh having uh, trouble with generally eating uh, not enough but i think it's it's quite uh quite rare i i've i can only think of maybe maybe two riders that that i i saw and i thought like okay is this is uh this is not this is not uh healthy this is not not right you have to you have to change it but i mean generally a lot of cyclists or most of the cyclists are very skinny but i i don't uh, i don't think there are that many pro pro cyclists with with eating disorder not not at least in the in the teams that uh, i've been one of the other things that comes to mind here for for professionals who are traveling all over the place um you know you're you're in belgium one day you're in portugal the next day they don't have this necessarily the same foods in these places do, do you struggle to get what you need as you travel around or do you kind of have the go-to foods that you know you can eat you know uh, generally that they they work with your stomach and your digestive system that you kind of know what calorie they have or is that a struggle uh, i think the hardest is the the travel itself and that's something that i i implemented only in the last couple of years is to always make sure to to take my own own food with me for the travel especially for the longer travel days and yeah it's still difficult to to get uh, a good uh, good food on on the go and uh, i think that's where i in the past did the, the biggest mistakes but once i'm in a place it's it's usually quite quite simple to to get the the right food anywhere in the world my yeah go to meal is uh, rice chicken then uh, some uh, vegetables and that's uh, that's something you can you can get really everywhere you can just uh, just ask for it even if it's not not available and uh, so that's that's not not an issue but but the travel itself always uh, leads to to eating pet food if you are not uh, ready for that yeah it is nice that pretty much every culture and every place rice 
chicken, vegetables. You can, that's nice that that can be a go-to because that is accessible nearly everywhere. Yeah, that's uh, and it's like balanced meal, so you don't. Uh, that's that's really really simple to to solve. And another thing, Albert. So I'm, you know, I have a bias towards evolutionary biology, and a really important side of evolutionary biology is this concept that we evolved in a time of caloric scarcity. It was never an issue of overconsuming. It was always an issue of getting enough calories to survive. So our bodies are designed to try to be very efficient with calories. So you have these issues, and you're bringing this up. When you start reducing the calories you consume, you naturally start to want to rest more. Our bodies are designed to say, I'm not getting enough calories. This is going to put me in a starvation state, so I'm going to do everything to start expending less calories because this is actually a survival mechanism. And it's no longer appropriate in modern society where there's a caloric excess. It's not a problem getting enough calories, but this is how our bodies were designed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely correct. So, so Dr. Noakes, I want to get back to something you've you've mentioned already, which is how the the you know all calories are not created equal, so to speak. Um, there's a debate between high carbohydrate and low carbohydrate, but it also seems like what you're saying is the type of car or the type of calories that you're putting into your body influences what you want to ingest next. Do I have that correct? Yes, I, I would say so. So I think one of the beauties of, of understanding nutrition and what good nutrition is, you have to have been fat once upon a time. If you were once fat and you reversed your fatness, then you have a much better insight into what's going on. And, and Gary Taubes makes this point all the time, that the, the scientists who, who kind of ignore the effects of what you're eating and say, well, it doesn't really matter, you can eat carbohydrates or you can eat fats, you can be thin by just controlling your calories. They're generally thin and they've never had an issue with weight. So they don't understand what it is to be have an abnormal metabolism that drives you to eat the wrong foods, which then make you fat. And I, that's a critical distinction. So I was fortunate that I lost 20, 40 pounds by changing my diet. And I was heading towards I had type 2 diabetes. I shouldn't be alive today. My dad had the diagnosis for 10 years and died from type 2 diabetes. And I've been 10, 11 years with the diagnosis and, and I'm doing pretty well. I'm probably not perfect, but, but doing, doing well enough. And so I, I ascribe my success and the fact that I'm not dead to I finally understood the problem. And as I see it, the problem is particularly in ultra-processed foods that we are forcing our bodies to eat. Humans went through three different dietary patterns. The first was we were mainly carnivorous as four, three, four million years ago. Then we went through the agricultural revolution 12,000 12, years ago. And then in the last hundred years, we've gone through this ultra-processed food, highly industrialized diet, which is completely different to what we'd ever eaten before. And the problems arise when you start eating highly addictive foods. And highly addictive foods include refined carbohydrates and sugar. And that's what swung the balance away from the, our ability to control our weight. So to get back to the point, the, the reason why the low carbohydrate diet works very well for some people, not for everyone, but for some people, and by and large, a majority of people, 
is because they're insulin resistant and they hypersecrete this hormone insulin. And I suspect there are many other hormonal abnormalities and it's this abnormal hormonal milieu that causes them to be perpetually hungry. And so they overconsume calories. Regardless of how motivated they are, they just can't stop eating. I once interviewed a guy who had lost 400 pounds weight. And I said, tell me, what was your condition when you weighed 620 pounds or something? And he said, I was perpetually hungry. I could eat a full meal and within within half an hour, I'd want to eat another meal. And that's the reality. So in my opinion, weight control is about, about making sure that you get rid of your crave food cravings. And a lot of those food cravings are sugar addictions or addictions to other ultra processed foods. And so there's a whole body of evidence rising now that that it's the ultra processed foods, high sugar, high refined carbohydrates that have upset the brain. And now the brain can't calculate accurately the calories in calories out balance. And so as a consequence, you tend to put on weight. Now for those people who have a sugar addiction, perhaps a bit of carbohydrate addiction, it's very clear that the best diet for them is one that restricts the foods to which they are addicted. And those generally is carbohydrates and sugar and ultra processed foods. And once they take ultra processed foods out of their diet, they find that they're not hungry all the time and they can eat less frequently and it's much easier for them to fast for 16 or 18 hours and the weight loss becomes much easier. So that, so my interpretation of that is that this is a brain driven phenomenon and that to lose weight and to maintain a healthy weight, you have to find the foods that to which you're not addicted, which do not drive your calorie consumption. So that's where I, I differ. Now, in the majority of people that I've described, it is definitely in the carbohydrate side of things. But in others, fat can drive too much energy consumption, and they will benefit by taking more protein. And so I think if I read the literature carefully over the last six months or so, there's a growing belief that in fact, protein deficiency is something else that drives our overconsumption of calories. And I th we don't have the definitive evidence, but there's clearly a lot of people who are increasing their protein intake and finding that that satiates them and they can lose weight. And if you look historically at the thinnest athletes, the ones who had the least body fat, they were the bodybuilders, they've always promoted a high protein diet but they could have had carbohydrates. They could have had quite a lot of carbohydrates in the diet, but they restricted the fat and supplemented with protein. So, so to summarize where, where we've got, we, we take our calories from fats, carbohydrates, and protein. And what each individual has to discover is the exact contribution of all of those three macronutrients, which they will find the most satiating at the lowest calorie consumption. That's the key. So it is always calories in and calories out, as we've argued. But the key is the nature of the food that you eat and the nature of your brain determines whether you'll be satiated by lots of protein, by lots of fat, 
and whether you'll be overstimulated by carbohydrates. And, and to me, that's, that's the, the ultimate decision on what you should be eating. You have to find out for yourself. And so although I may benefit from a low carbohydrate diet, I know the diet that we proposed, 10% of people put on weight on the diet. So that's not the right diet for them. And for them, by and large, it was to increase the protein content. So this is very complex. And unfortunately, the complexity hasn't been tweaked out. And now we've got the two camps. We've got the low carbs and the high carb camps. And we, what we need to do is take a step back and say, actually, it's pretty complex. The brain's really important. And we need to, we need to explain what happens anecdotally, for example. So if you do a clinical trial, and you do a study with, with people losing weight, that is not the same as people free living and changing their diets. And that's a big error we've made. We, we try to interpret the laboratory studies as definitive evidence for the advice we could, should give to free living humans. And it doesn't work because free living humans can lose 100 kilograms or 200 pounds on, a, on one or other diet. And that never happens in the clinical trials for reasons that I don't understand. So the clinical trials do not reflect what we see in, in real life. Well, part of the issue with clinical trials is, A, it's really difficult to actually get people to adhere to the diets. A lot of the clinical trials are, are very short term. Um, so you know, I've, I've seen this a lot in the research where people go, well, there are these studies of, of low carbohydrate, high carbohydrate diets, but at the end of the day, there was such low adherence, you can't really take anything from the studies. So we've, we've tried the studies, they, they've often kind of failed, where I think when you have people in, in real life who have these weight issues and say, I need to do something, they're motivated and you see these people that actually do adhere to their diet and, and produce results. Precisely, and I couldn't agree with you more. And the, but the problem is that the scientists who are doing the diet studies believe only what they see in, the, in front of them in their clinical trials. And they don't have experience of treating real patients in real life. It's, I'm an exercise physiologist, and I know that. The problem was you always want to be able to explain everything on the test that you do in the laboratory. So if you measure oxygen consumption or you do a muscle biopsy and you measure the fiber composition or the muscle glycogen content, what you do is then you see, well, this explains all of exercise physiology, which of course it doesn't. And that's the problem. The people who are speaking to the media and the press are by and large, often, they're, they're credible because they work in a famous laboratory in a famous university, and they spend their lives doing clinical trials, which have, no, which have some relevance to the real world, but that they're not the answer. The answers, as I've observed, the answers to the problems of weight control they're out there in the general public. The general public is discovering what works and they're telling us and they're asking us for an explanation and, and we still don't have a full explanation. So I, I do want to go back. I really want to emphasize a, a point that you brought up is, is the importance of insulin in all this. So it has been demonstrated time and time again in the research that insulin sparks hunger. So you have this interesting fact that if you consume a high simple carbohydrate diet, that's going to spike your insulin. And that's not going to satiate you. That's actually going to make you more hungry. And that's, that's not controversial. That's been proven. Now, carbohydrates and protein both spike insulin. But the only thing that gets insulin to really high levels are those simple sugars. 
another, and you brought this up about protein, two really important things about protein is a protein's highly satiating. It's hard to eat a ton before you say, I'm full. I don't want to eat much more. And we also talked about the thermic effect of food. Protein actually has a very high thermic effect. Something like 30% of the calories you consume from protein are needed to process the protein, where when you look at carbohydrates and fats, very low thermic effect. So I, I have seen research that says when you are on that high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, um, and they do actually, you know, so I have seen some studies where they go, yeah, we see benefits to this, and they try to address it. The directions I've seen that research go is saying it's the, actually the, the higher protein content of the diet that satiates, that has mm. that higher thermic effect, so it's raising the amount mm. of, of calories that you're burning, and it's keeping insulin down. And that's one of the really big ones. I, I really want to point this, again, as an evolutionary biologist, um, when you look at eating natural foods, so vegetables, fruits, lean meats, eggs, fish, no processed foods, it's very high to very hard to really elevate your insulin. It takes processed foods that you see in the Western diet to see those sort of insulin levels that we now start thinking of as being normal, which they aren't. And Dr. Knox, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I just don't like to get pigeonholed into the argument of you know the calories in, calories out, or the carbohydrate insulin model. And I kind of try to direct it towards the hunger model of yeah. obesity. So the other, the other part of the hunger model is that the more protein, protein tends to come with lots of nutrients. And so Ted Naiman, who's very active on, on social media is, and wrote the book, The PE Diet, has, has really stimulated a lot of good thinking that, that nutrient density may also be a factor and that you need a nutrient-dense yes. diet, and that, that part of the hunger is because we're not getting the nutrients. And, and I think that's a fascinating idea. And I, I don't know how you prove it or disprove it, but it's certainly important. But, but let's make the point. If you have type 1 diabetes, you die of starvation. You die of thinness. You have to have insulin to, to put on weight, to put on fat. So, so insulin has to be central to the model in, in the sense that of it's, act on, it's acting on fat tissue, that if you have high insulins, you can't burn the fat. So you store the fat and you can't burn it. So no question that carbohydrates in those people who are hypersecreting insulin, that it's a, it's a key factor. And, you know, I, I deal with a lot of patients and, and myself included. I study myself, obviously, and, and I had to get my grams of carbohydrate way down to 25 grams or less every day to get the real benefits. And, and I think that that's the problem, that you can be so sensitive to carbohydrate that just going to 30 or 40 grams of carbohydrate is not going to be it's not going to help you. And, and the clinical studies, too few of the clinical studies go right down to those very low carbohydrate intakes. So I absolutely agree that insulin is, is a crucial factor and that carbohydrates have a bigger effect on insulin than, than the other macronutrients. And, and so I absolutely agree with you. And I just want to make the point that insulin has huge effects on the body, but it also, as you've indicated, effects on the brain. And, and in, in my case, when cutting the carbohydrates, the, the effect was almost instantaneous and it was like it's a hormonal effect. So, so I suspect that, that we'll eventually get the whole story. I think off air we were chatting and part of the problem is that the people promoting the different models, the, 
the carbohydrate insulin theory or the or the calories in calories out energy surplus model of obesity that that the models are, are very complex and they they tend to ignore the brain and the brain is so critical to this whole discussion that it can't be it can't be excluded and unfortunately we don't yet know fully how the brain works in in people who are obese and those who are thin we don't necessarily know the difference i would argue that that addiction food addiction is is a key factor that we've ignored ex-world tour rider and now gravel racing expert ted king talked with us about what it's like watching his weight as a pro and the dangers of eating disorders at that level let's hear what he has to say yeah i would say at some point in in i should say the vast majority of professional cyclist careers they're going to have some semblance of an eating disorder and i think it will run the gamut from very mild to severe i don't think i had anything terribly severe but at some point in my career i would be on the verge of starvation and a lot of that actually to be honest was <laughs> you spend enough time in a very traditional program like liquor gas and we would go to training camps and be riding five hours a day and and fuel that on boiled spinach and boiled broccoli and boiled uh, cauliflower, just like the most ridiculous meal you've ever seen, and pasta. So they're not actually starving you. But when you have a, a team doctor literally standing over the entire team as we eat, there's it's understood that everybody early season is overweight. That's just sort of the general assumption. No matter how lean you are, you're going to be overweight. I know things are changing. I've been out of world tour racing for six years now, five years. So there is a much better understanding, but especially in a, in a traditional program like that, that, that sort of thinking does exist. I know that I'm not uh, celiac, but that would be one way that I would could very easily control weight would be turn on and turn off eating gluten. And I don't have any adverse reactions to gluten. It's just a very simple thing to, in the afternoon, say I'm gonna eat a carrot instead of eating a cracker, instead of eating bread, instead of eating cookie instead of going to a bakery and having any sort of baked good because you know that there is gluten in it. That was, that was a simple way for me to control calorie consumption. I am I'm something of a believer in the thermodynamics side of things. Like you said, I mean, it's, it's, I, I do believe in calories in, calories out, uh, calories in versus calories expended. So I guess I tend, both in my career and now I look at it, in a macro cycle so you know this time of year we're going to be riding less it is it is cool outside you're doing sort of more base miles um and inevitably your weight might be a little bit higher because you're just riding less than the than the volume and intensity that you're going to get in season and so you might want to curb your caloric consumption this time of year that said it is i don't know when this podcast is going to come out but it's the holidays and the holidays are a time for delicious gluttony so you know that's that's a, it's a bit of a tough toss up. I also don't get on a scale these days. Um, I, I shouldn't say that. I get on a scale maybe once a month for mere curiosity. And whereas in, a, in my world tour racing career, you could obsess, you can get on a, a scale twice a day, three times a day, five times a day. I mean, those, those are obviously signs of, of obsession about weight. Those are things that I happily don't do now because I don't need to. Yes, I'm competitive in gravel racing, but having gone through the, the rigmarole and the obsession of weight and calories and, and that whole world, I just, I don't 
need to. I don't want to. I, I ride a bike because I like riding a bike. I like looking at that macro picture of, okay, I'm eating more, so maybe I should ride a little bit more. It seems like the answer would be pretty obvious, but could you spell out what are the pitfalls of that counting calories mentality, that obsession? I think the calorie counting can be done safely and it can be done healthfully. It's, it's on just counting calories alone is on the precipice of an obsession. You know, I, I celebrate food. I love food. I love, I love, you know, getting together with family and friends and, and what it means to break bread, so to speak. It's a little bit of a bummer when, you know, you can't celebrate that because you're so obsessed about calories. The, the risk is the potential subsequent steps. That alone isn't a problem. It's what, what calorie counting can very quickly lead to. At Fast Talk, we believe it's important to train with intention and look at your performance with a critical eye. If you'd like to learn how to evaluate your workouts and training, take a look at our new pathway on basic performance data analysis. Pathways are like a masterclass on endurance sports topics. In this new pathway, we tap experts like Tim Cusick, Dirk Friel, our head coach Ryan Kohler, coach Julie Young, and sports scientist Dr. Steven Seiler to explore ways that you can cut through the noise and focus on the performance numbers that matter most. To understand your data is to understand yourself. Follow our new pathways at fasttalklabs.com slash pathways. Well, yeah, that's that's what I was hoping we could just briefly address um, next. And I know it's a big subject and we don't have all the answers, but, you know, you, you mentioned sugar, uh, highly processed foods have these addictive qualities. Why do they have these addictive qualities? I was going to say because sugar must have had some role, evolutionary role, that made it very attractive for us. And so that may be one possibility. So all we know is that they stimulate the same parts of the brain that other addictive activities do. And that people will argue that sugar is as or more addictive than cocaine and it acts through the same pathways in the brain. So, so the, the argument that, that sugar isn't addictive, I think, is very weak. And certainly humans act as if it is addictive. And if you deal with children, you'll notice that once they can't get their sugar, they start to, the behavior changes and conversely it changes when they're given sugar. And as a sugar addict myself, I, I appreciate that, that, that it has all the characteristics of an addiction. And the only treatment is a complete avoidance of sugar. But in, if you're going to eat processed foods, they are so laden with sugar. Something like 80% of ultra-processed foods have sugar in them and a lot of sugar. And the problem for society is that children are getting exposed to sugar from at six months or earlier. As soon as they're taken off the breast, they're given other milk and that contains is full of sugar in this and the weaning foods that most children are weaned onto are full of sugar. So the addiction begins at a very early stage. And it, it is so advanced that, that the question is whether we can ever get rid of that uh, in the society. So I'll throw in the, the evolutionary biology perspective of, of this and, and our explanation for why sugar is um, addictive. 
uh, first of all, you have to remember the brain survives on glucose. And now I know, and you're a big proponent of the keto diet, and yeah. the brain can survive on ketones, but even in a purely ketogenic state, your body ramps up gluconeogenesis. The brain still needs mm. to get about 30% no. of its energy from glucose. If it doesn't get any glucose, your brain will starve. So your brain, because it's controlling the hunger signals, is saying, when, when you encounter sugar, give it to me. When you encounter carbohydrates, yeah. give it to me. Now, here, you might not agree with this, but this is my evolutionary biology perspective, which is our bodies don't ever want to overconsume something. So you hear people all the time say, why are all the things that I like the most so bad for me? It's <laughs> My explanation is these things that we really crave in evolutionary times were actually quite rare. It was actually yeah. very hard to get simple sugars. Every once in a while you would encounter honey or maple syrup, and mm. I'm sure the hunter-gatherers absolutely loved it and consumed it, but then it would be weeks before they would encounter it again. So because it was rare, your brain's basically said, when you encounter this, eat it. As much as you can. Yeah, right. get it in. So yeah. your brain had a craving, but it was controlled by the fact that it was rare. So you just didn't ever consume that much. We have the issue now that you have this craving and it's everywhere. So now we mm. can dramatically overconsume it. Absolutely. And to get honey was pretty dangerous. Yes. <laughs> Very difficult. <laughs> to put a further point on the, uh, the debate, I guess you could call it, over sugar, uh, a few years ago there were some legitimate reviews, studies in uh, very respectable journals that – kind of uncovered what was going on here. It wasn't so much a conspiracy theory. There were actual devious <laughs> intents and manipulation happening within the industry to to um, promote sugar over other things. Trevor, do you want to chime in here and, and give us a sense of how deep it went? Yeah, and let me just give the, the quick two minute and then Dr. Noakes, please take this. But this is really important to me because I, I adhor conspiracy theories. When people come up to me and go, oh, there's this in the industry, this industry is trying to do this or that, I just shut off. But this is one where this isn't just conspiracy theory. A few years ago, there were these two reviews published, and we'll put the, the references um, on the website for these, where these were published in a high-impact journal where they went back and reviewed 20 years worth of internal communications within the sugar industry. And this goes exactly to what you were saying, Dr. Noakes. At the time, research was starting to come out showing that sugar was contributing to heart disease. And the sugar industry didn't want that. So they funded research to point the finger at fat. Um, and, and it was biased research. And what's really interesting is the person who led this research, funded by the sugar industry, was then hired by the USDA to come up with the food pyramid. Yeah, absolutely. That That's all correct. Uh, I spent the last year or so writing columns for, for the CrossFit magazine, and they asked me to look into how the diet heart hypothesis evolved. And it, it goes back to the guy called Ansel Keys, and, and we won't discuss him today. But what, what I will say was that in the 1960s, the clear evidence was that carbohydrates were driving heart disease because they raised blood triglyceride concentrations. So in the late 1950s, the evidence published in the major journals was that people with heart disease had high blood triglyceride concentrations. 
And the reason why diabetic patients were getting heart disease was because they had high triglyceride concentrations and their blood cholesterol concentrations were not grossly elevated. And so the hypothesis was very strong that it's carbohydrates, not fats. So that was the one stream. Against that, we had the American Heart Association, which was driving the fat story. The defining moment was in June 1965, when four articles appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine. I think it was the June issue. And those four articles all focused specifically on carbohydrates and sugars as driving hypertriglyceridemia, high triglyceride levels, and then the risk that they pose to the heart. This caused such a problem for the sugar industry that they sent off their vice president, and he was sent to Harvard. And he met with the professors of nutrition at Harvard. And he said to them, guys, we have a problem. We have these four articles, which are suggesting that sugar is toxic for humans. And that we don't like that. We would like you to write a review showing the opposite, that fat is what is killing humans and not sugar. It took them a year and a half to write the article, but in November 1967, in the New England Journal of Medicine, in two parts, these, the Harvard people wrote the article that said sugar is not the problem, it is fat that is the problem. And that basically killed the debate. The debate ended in November 1967 end of debate, it's all fat. And then, of course, the American Heart Association and then all the global organizations and the National Institute of Health started funding these major trials of low-fat diets in chronic disease and particularly heart disease. And you know what was so important? Not one of the studies ever looked at sugar. Yep. So the National Institute of Health never did a study in which they reduced the sugar intake of a population. They spent all their money, and it went to billions of dollars. They spent all their money reducing the saturated fat or replacing fat with polyunsaturated fats. And they did all those clinical trials. And essentially, they all came to naught. There was not one study which convincingly showed that if you removed saturated fat from the diet or you reduced your fat intake by replacing with polyunsaturated fats, that you improved your health. In fact, they tended to show the opposite, that these were harmful. If you took saturated fat out of the diet, harm developed. But the, but the key point is that the influence of the sugar industry was so powerful that sugar was never tested in a long-term clinical trial. So I found one of these reviews. So this is 2016, September um, issue. And it was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, which I can't emphasize enough. That is a highly respected journal. Title of this review is Sugar Industry and Coronary Heart Disease Research, a Historical Analysis of Internal Industry Documents. And let me just read two sentences out of the, uh, the abstract. So it starts with early warning signals of coronary heart disease, CHD, risk of sugar, sucrose, emerged in the 1950s. We examined Sugar Research Foundation internal documents, historical reports, and statements relevant to early debates about the dietary cause of CHD and assembled findings chronologically into a narrative case study. And then it continues, the SRF, so that's a sugar industry, set the review's objectives, contributed articles for inclusion, and received drafts. The FR SRF's funding and role was not disclosed. 
Together with other recent analysis of sugar industry documents, our findings suggest the industry sponsored a research program in the 1960s and 1970s that successfully cast doubt about the hazards of sucrose while promoting fat as the dietary culprit. There you go. Can't be more clear yeah, than that. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I've just, I, I've, I eventually wrote a book about my trial with uh, Marika Sporos called Real Food on Trial, and it's, uh, it's well reviewed on, on Amazon. But we, we included some of that, but this, the, the story that you've just mentioned is, is described in the most recent book we wrote called The Eat Right Revolution. And we wrote this because we wanted to describe what had happened to the, the science, the poor nutrition science, and how it had been controlled by the industry over the last 50 years. And so we go to through all the evidence of how industry has influenced the dietary guidelines in this period. And I focus specifically also on that, that story that you've just described. And we call it two catastrophic events that began the current dietary disaster. This is the one chapter I wrote. And the first one, the first apocalypse, the great Harvard sugar bribe of 1965. And this, as you've indicated, this is no conspiracy theory. And if you read the Eat Right Revolution, you'll see that exactly what happened. It's no conspiracy. It was just industry defending its its target, its markets, and making sure that we never questioned that uh, ultra processed, highly processed foods are are not good for us. And what's great to see is, is certainly, I think this review was a factor. But you are now seeing more and more research being done on the impact of simple sugar and heart disease. This research has started in the 50s and 60s. And sure enough, it is showing there is a direct link. So do we want to turn our attention, and we have touched upon this a, a few times now, but do we want to get into the more practical ways in which people can control weight, can do it healthily, um, and set aside all the <laughs> whatever marketing ploys are out there in the world. It sounds like you you both have um, very strong opinions here, well grounded in science. So why don't we turn our attention there? Yeah, and Dr. Noak, something on this basis, I was really glad to hear you say this, and I'd like to hear more of your opinion on this because I will tell you this is my big bias: is the importance <laughs> of nutrient density. So I'll, I'll give you my <laughs> statement, which is. I think we forget about the quality of the foods when we start talking mm -hmm. about just macronutrient ratios or calories. And I will make the statement, I can have somebody lose weight eating McDonald's. Now, the fact of the mm -hmm. matter is you're mm -hmm. going to have to mm -hmm. lock them in a room because they're going to try to break the door because of the sugar addiction. <laughs> Get more. It's going to be absolutely miserable. But you can lose weight losing eating McDonald's. But that doesn't answer the question, is that a healthy way? Is that a healthy way to eat? And I, I want to hear what you have to say, but I feel that when you are eating a nutrient-dense diet, you are eating healthier. And I do think it's going to make it easier because it, it helps reduce those hunger signals. Um, it is going to make it easier to control weight. But how do you feel? Well, I mean, that's my own experience and, and dealing with people. And, and I've, I've interacted with with tens of thousands of people. You know, I introduced the so-called Banting diet to South Africa, and there's a Banting Facebook page in, in my town, which has 2 million people, 2 million followers. It's more than any of the political parties in South Africa. Hmm. 
and that tells you that that the the move to eat real foods has really satisfied a lot of people and helped them sort, sort out the problems. So I have no question that if we were to assess the people who've successfully lost weight and controlled their hunger, you would find that the main change was from ultra processed foods to the type of foods you're talking about, the real foods. And I know Dr. Cordain maybe doesn't have such a strong opinion about animal based foods, but I, in my experience, for the majority of people, animal based foods are, are very helpful because they are nutrient dense. And that they, as you've indicated, they take away the hunger. The, the issue is, as we've discussed, you have to decide, is it more protein or is it more fat? For some people, the fat is satiating. For other people, the protein is satiating. And whether that's related to the nutrient density, I don't know. But I, I would think that in the next five or five years or so, we're going to see more and more the theory that it's nutrient density that is driving satiety rather than the low carbohydrate or the high fat, high protein components of the diet. So right. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, to discovering more about that and having more research done. I think that we've, we've got hoodwinked into this. It's all the carbohydrates or it's not all the carbohydrates. And we need to broaden the, the debate beyond that. I actually wrote a paper with Dr. Cordain all about nutrient density and we did and anybody can do this we just use a standard um, nutrition software that does an analysis of the various foods and we did an analysis of the nutrient density of the different food classes and then ranked them and, and here is the order it goes top you know highest nutrient density seafood then vegetables then fruits then lean meats then eggs and now we're getting into the low nutrient density. Then it goes legumes, starchy roots, so that's your potatoes, things like that. And, and rounding out the bottom of the list is whole milk, whole grains, nuts and seeds. Yeah, there you go. And so if you were to eat the, diet, the foods from the top of that list, you would be very quickly losing weight and you'd be able to regulate your, your weight much better. And so there are some carbohydrates in those top top ones, but there's much more of the carbohydrates in the lower nutrient dense foods as as I see it. So I would agree with you. And and people like Ted Naiman who are talking about nutrient density, that's exactly the diet he would be prescribing. For me, because I have type two diabetes, I have to be wary about the carbohydrate content of the diet because I can't assimilate carbohydrates. I can't cope with it. And my glucose goes out of control. So that for other health reasons, I I restrict the vegetables and and the carbohydrate containing vegetables particularly and the problem is that not everyone who's obese is insulin resistant but the majority are and the more you've moved towards diabetes the more difficult it is for you to cope with with adding carbohydrates and so so, so i think that's that's the refinement if everyone was healthy what you have described is absolutely perfect. That's the way we should be eating. And that would allow some people to eat more carbohydrate than others, and that we wouldn't have to restrict the carbohydrate intake as much as I promote. But I'm talking to the people who have serious insulin resistance, uh, pre-diabetes, diabetes, and they benefit most by reducing the carbohydrates way down to, to almost absent. 
and I, and that's where the that's where the problem arises. The the argument becomes, oh, but Noakes says he restricts carbohydrate too much, and but the nutrient dense foods you can have some carbohydrates because they're good foods and and they'll be healthy, but unfortunately the carbohydrate content, in my opinion, makes them not acceptable for people with insulin resistance. And and the longer you had your insulin resistance, and the more diabetic or pre-diabetic you are, the more unfortunately you have to restrict the carbohydrates in the diet. A lot of the research is not done on these people who who are in that range, uh, who are as insulin resistant or pre-diabetic as myself and others. I'm really glad you brought up that difference between you know people who are diabetic, people who are insulin resistant, and then people who who are not. Um, and obviously, you need to take a different approach. But just so, you know, obviously, we're a podcast that's focusing towards cyclists. So I think most of the people we're talking to are not insulin resistant. But something I really want to point out that, that you alluded to is you know, I get asked this question all the time when people hear I don't eat grains. Like, how do you get your carbohydrates? Because people think carbohydrates and grain products are the same. Vegetables and fruits, if you're classifying foods by what is their primary macronutrient, are carbohydrates. The difference being vegetables and fruits have a low glycemic load, which means when you eat them, they aren't going to spike your insulin the way processed food or, or simp simple grains, especially processed grains, are going to spike your insulin. And it's those big spikes in insulin that are going to lead to those unhealthy effects. So this is a personal experience that really clued me in on the importance of nutrient density. This goes back a lot of years. I was at a doing one of my five-day training camps. I was up in Victoria, so we were doing this at the center. And I was struggling this whole camp. And what was really strange is, you know, so back then I, I was all about the eat as many carbohydrates as you can. So when we'd stop to grab food, I would just be wolfing down the candy and, and every bit of simple sugar I could. But this particular camp, we would stop at gas stations, and for some reason I didn't want sugar. I kept wanting turkey jerky. Okay. <laughs> and I don't know why, but I just, we would go into the, the gas station and I would buy my turkey jerky and, and eat it. And I just couldn't get enough and had no idea why this was until soon after the camp, I started getting cracks at the corner of my lips. So mm. I talked to one of my nutrition instructors about this and we looked it up and discovered cracks at the corners of your lips. Uh, is one of the symptoms of riboflavin deficiency. Hmm. Yeah. And looked it up, turkey jerky is very high in riboflavin. So this kind of clued me in that I think we think hunger signals are an on-off signal. It's just you're hungry and you eat food or you're not hungry. I do believe our bodies have an actual pretty good sense of saying, I'm not only hungry, but I'm hungry for something. And I think it's we're often hungry for nutrients. And we have gotten pretty bad at listening to exactly what the hunger signal is. So I do think part of this satiation issue is we eat these low nutrient density foods. Our bodies go, I'm hungry. And it's hungry for something. So you go and wolf down a Big Mac and your body goes, well, thank you. I'm going to store those calories because that was a whole lot of calories. But you still didn't give me what I need. So I'm not shutting off that hunger signal. And I have worked with a lot of people who say I'm hungry all the time, and I tell them, eat nutrient density. And I do believe that you are then satisfying the hunger signals better, and your body goes, okay, now you've given me what, my, what I need. 
great, I'm going to turn the hunger off. And I do think that is one of the issues with these ultra-processed foods, is they're low nutrient density, your body's not getting what it needs, so it's going to keep telling you, I need something. Mm-hmm. But that's my theory. Dr. Noakes, how do you feel about that? I think that's a fabulous story because it, it resonates with me because I always think that personal anecdotal experience is so important and we underestimate it. And I, I think that I, I've tried to make this point that when I got into a low carbohydrate diet and it cured my diabetes, and then I thought, well, it's cutting the carbohydrates, but of course I changed the diet completely and I cut out all the ultra processed foods. And so I think what's happened is that we are saying it's low carbohydrate and for people with diabetes it's clearly low carbohydrate is very important but for the person who is carbohydrate tolerant it's not the cutting the carbohydrate that's important it's cutting the ultra processed foods and eating real foods and the energy dense foods you described and that's what we're going to come with i think in the end we're going to realize that the carbohydrates are toxic for a proportion of the population but the, the bigger problem is the lack of nutrient density in the ultra-processed foods and, of course, the addictive nature of those foods. So I think in the end, we will come to an agreement that, that what we thought was the problem with eating too much carbohydrate, it's not. It's eating foods that are not nutrient-dense and they're ultra-processed. And the focus really needs to shift away from focusing, it's just the carbohydrates, to saying, no, it's ultra-processed foods that you've got to, you've got to get rid of. And you've got to replace them with energy, nutrient-dense foods. Not energy-dense, sorry, nutrient-dense foods. And uh, I like the table that you had there, Trevor, or the, the description, because I think that's, that's important, that we need to rank our foods on their nutrient density, not on the grams of carbohydrate and the grams of fat and the grams of protein. I want to draw attention to Chris Froome, who... I don't know if you know, but he trained in South Africa yes. uh, before he went overseas and became a, a world-class cyclist. And in South Africa, he was quite chubby. And there are pictures of him weighing about eight kilograms more than he does now. And the story is that Chris went to do the Spanish race, the, the Tour of Spain, and when he came, and he came second. So he came from being less, like the 30th best cyclist in the world to all of a sudden coming second. And he came home to Cape Town to see his girlfriend, who happened to be know something about nutrition. And she looked at him and she said, Chris, you look terrible. What happened? So he said, no, well, I lost eight kilograms and came second in the, the tour of Spain. And she said, well, that's great. What did you do? So he said, no, he went on a high protein diet. And I think what he meant was he was on a low carbohydrate, high protein diet. And he then went on and won the Tour de France and became the very special cyclist that he is. His problem, in my interpreter, he's insulin resistant and he can't tolerate much carbohydrate. He's, he definitely continues to eat carbohydrates when he's doing hard effort and he does take in carbohydrates during the race. So he's not a zero carbohydrate man. But I would guess that during the off-season, he restricts his carbohydrates because if he doesn't, he's eight kilograms heavier and he's not a competitive, he's not world-class anymore. And I, I think there are a lot of people, and it's not cycling because you're talking to very good cyclists, but you know, I, as a runner, and I was always interested in, in how you could have obese runners and some of them pretty good. 
And if you go to a marathon today, you'll see that the guys finishing over three and a half hours, there's a high proportion of people who are carrying excess weight. And that's because we and myself, and I'm one of the causes, we over-promoted carbohydrates for exercise performance. And if you're running a three-hour marathon or a three-and-a-half-hour marathon or a four-hour marathon, you can do that perfectly well on a very low carbohydrate diet. So I'm not... I'm not arguing that people like Chris Froome do need some more carbohydrates when they're training hard and they're competing at world-class level. But Chris Froome is a different animal than the rest of us. And, and we really need to understand that, that a high-carbohydrate diet may help some athletes at the very top of their games. But for the rest of us, it's probably much easier to re regulate our weight by being a little bit more cautious on how much carbohydrate we eat. And I'll point out, I mean, I still consider myself a relatively competitive cyclist. Um, I also feel that I do eat healthy. And I will tell you, my diet is about 30 to 40% carbohydrate. So I'm not a really low carbohydrate person, but it's the sources of my carbohydrates. Like I said, I get them mostly from what I consider healthier sources, which I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. Yeah, absolutely. But you are still eating a, a relatively low carbohydrate diet compared to North Americans who, yeah. who are probably eating 50 to 60% carbohydrate. And, and, I, I, and you've, as you've indicated, you're eating healthy carbohydrates. You're not getting the instant spikes all the time. So you, you're absolutely correct. that. But you are still eating a relatively low carbohydrate. In fact, carbohydrate diet. In fact, the only publication that was used in my trial by the opposition said a low carbohydrate diet is anything below 45% carbohydrate. And of course, I don't believe that. I think a low carb diet is 5% carbohydrate. But it shows that the average nutritionist in the world has been taught that you must not go below 45% carbohydrate. So you are eating a relatively carbohydrate restricted diet compared to, to the rest of North America. You know, my issue with that 60-65% recommendation, I've done this. I've tried to, to put together menus that get to that percentage on what I consider healthy foods. And I personally do not believe you can eat over 60% of your calories from carbohydrates without starting to eat a whole lot of low nutrient density, um, highly processed, high simple sugar foods. Precisely. And I, I helped one of our top triathletes in South Africa who then went and set the Ironman record in South Africa, as a South African, I should say. And the junk he was eating on the diet to get him all those carbohydrate calories was amazing. And I, you, you can't eat that diet because it's nutrient poor and a, a disastrous diet. And he immediately improved. And was it because he was eating less carbohydrate? Maybe, but maybe it's because he now had a more nutrient dense diet and he was just healthier uh, in, in all ways. So absolutely agree with you. If you're eating more than 60% carbohydrate, that's going to be a dreadful diet in terms of nutrient density and, and the quality of the diet. So I remember hearing an interview with Floyd Landis. So I'm sure most of our listeners remember him. He unfortunately won the Tour de France, but then got busted for, for doping. Um, but in this interview, he talked about the diets ate, and his comment was, oh, no, we all ate like crap. We had to. It was the only way to survive. And you can hear interviews with guys from that era who talked about going out for six-hour rides, and then they'd come home and take a sleeping pill because so, they'd be ferociously hungry and just knock themselves out and not eat. So that goes back to the, you can lose weight on a horrible diet. It's just miserable. 
And, and mm. that's kind of what they were doing. And I'm a big believer that I think part of the reason that era was so reliant on doping was because they were eating such a bad diet. They needed to compensate for what that diet was doing to them. That's a fascinating comment, uh, which I've not heard before. And certainly something to think about. I must tell you that Dave Scott, the great triathlete, who one of the world's greatest triathletes in the Ironman, he really built the the discipline of ultra marathons. You know, I'm from South Africa and we have the Comrades Marathon, which has been going since 100 years this year, exactly. And that's a 90 kilometer race. And already in the in the 70s, we had thousands of runners and now it's up to 20,000 or so. But it was the only ultra marathon where you had more than, let's say, 100 athletes. And along came the Ironman. And all of a sudden, you had thousands of people competing an event that lasts eight to for 15 hours. And Dave Scott obviously dominated originally. And uh, I, I'm, I spoke to him quite recently because he read my book on the high fat diet and he adapted his diet six years ago from a, he was a vegetarian when he was competing in the Ironman. And then he slowly reintroduced particularly fish and other healthy animal based foods. And he said, when I read your book, then I went more completely and I cut out the grains and benefited from it. And he said that he would never prescribe the diet, that, the high carbohydrate diet to any athlete, because he says you can't survive on that diet. And that comes back to what you've said, that he said that you, you can survive a few years at world class level, but then you just burn out. And again, I would argue that it's the nutrient poor diet that, that's causing the problems. As we just talked about, nutrition is about a lot more than calories. Hannah Finchamp, a coach and a mountain and gravel pro on the Orange Seal off-road team, talked with us about the importance of nutrient density and giving our bodies what they need. Oh man, race weight's a tough question. It's such a hot topic and it's, um, it's a delicate subject too. I think that it really, it really does need to be addressed because I think by uh, so many people avoiding it, it becomes even more sensitive. But, you know, I think, I, I think of food as fuel. You know, I, as a professional athlete, I, I have all of these things measured and dialed in as I'm sure all the pros do of, you know, you go, you get a DEXA, you get whatever sort of um, body composition test done so that you can really truly know like, hey, what is my race weight? What is safe? Um, where am I functioning with, you know, optimal performance and health, you know, putting both those things. So for me, um, that that's really important is having those really specific measurements where I can, I can know based on the science where I'm at. Um, people who don't have access to that, I think the important thing is to focus on the food being fuel first. You know, I think that, I think that we can maintain better race weight when we're focusing on fueling during the right times. You know, so when you wake, it, I feel like I'm going to get in trouble, right? Because there's so many fad diets like intermittent fasting and stuff like that. But I think that, you know, at least for me and, and, and my philosophy is, is fueling in the right moments, you know? So 
waking up and immediately eating, getting your metabolism going, you know, early in the morning. It's, it's eating when you're on the ride so that you're fueling your performance well, you're not, in, you're not hurting your performance, and then also coming back and raiding your cabinets because you're so starving and you don't have time to cook anything and now you're just eating whatever you have laying around. So it's eating during that, it's having your recovery drink right after when your metabolism is still high and you can really utilize those things and, and maybe having protein before bed. It, it's really hitting all those nutritional checkpoints. And I think that when we hit those nutritional checkpoints and we work with our metabolism um, and with those nutrients that our body needs, our body really can figure it out on its own. So it's just giving our bodies what it needs in order for it to find uh, its optimal um, weight, as you might say, or you know, performance health level. Dr. Noakes, anything else that you wanted to make sure we addressed today? No, I think you got all my biases in, and I think it was <laughs> great. <laughs> and I, I didn't want to, you know, fall on either side of the calories in, calories out, carbohydrate instant here. I think it's it's more nuanced than that, and and I, I think that actually there's more. What I'm observing is that people are beginning to realize that carbohydrates can be a problem, and that restricting carbohydrates to, you know, let's say, thirty percent, forty percent may be beneficial for for a number of people and once you've got diabetes or ty- or pre-diabetes marked insulin resistance that that's the indication that you've got to be more careful on the carbohydrates and i think that nuance is coming through so so even uh, kevin hall i think i see him shifting his position slightly and that in time we'll all come back to the same realization that it's how the foods influence your hunger that that's critical and and that that's that will be good if we can get there and that's what we need to make the argument you must eat so that you aren't hungry and get the most nutrient-dense foods for the least calories that's the way you remain healthy we like to close out an episode uh with a take-home message from each of the each of the people in the room Dr. Noakes, I'll start with you. We have started to come to some very uh, conclusive statements here, but maybe you could restate it again to give give listeners out there a sense of the most important message from this episode, from this discussion. Yeah, thanks, Chris. So my most important message is that if you want to control your weight, you have to get rid of food cravings. You have to find the foods that satiate you And those are the foods that give you the most nutrient density at the lowest number of calories. And for many foods, there are animal or fish-based foods, and they're certainly not the ultra-processed foods. So the first step in controlling your hunger and ultimately controlling your weight and controlling how many calories you need is to make sure you're eating nutrient-dense foods that satiate you. Very good. Trevor, what would you add? I think the the best summary was just given. And I'm trying to think of other things. There's so many things to touch on. I'm getting a little (laughs) overwhelmed here. But I'm going to start with the original question, which is, does it come down to calories in, calories out? And the, the incredibly simplistic answer is, can't break the law of thermodynamics. Yes. The issue is, 
you can't measure that. Mm -hmm. And I think the more important question is what Dr. Noakes, you are getting at, which is what is the health of that diet? And I, I agree with you 100% that you really do need to focus on that nutrient density. That's going to push you towards a healthier diet, which also is going to have that side effect, I think, of satiating you and making it really easy or much easier to keep your weight down. Chris, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, it. it's really a fascinating subject. Nutrition, generally, weight loss, people make it really complex for, for lots of different reasons. But if you just went back to the, the chart we just referenced and you look at the top five foods that have the most nutrient density and you told people, don't look at anything else besides basically this chart. This chart is your guide. Ignore the food pyramid. It's ridiculous. Look at this chart. It becomes extremely simple in some ways. Eat these foods. You'll not only lose weight, you'll be a healthier person, which means not only healthy in physically, but very likely mentally as well. Um, however, this is where nutrition and diet and food get so complicated is you've got industry, you've got money, you've got marketing, all sending you different messages, wrong messages. Uh, and it's hard, some people have a hard time waiting, uh, waiting through all of that noise to get to what they need to get to. But I, I would argue that once it is clear, it's pretty simple. Well, Dr. Noakes, thanks so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Yes, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show again. Uh, thanks very much for your time. Fantastic. Thank you both so much. It's been a very invigorating discussion, and I hope that your audience will, will learn from it. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts, and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Tim Noakes, Trevor Connor, Rob Pickles, and Ted King, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.